Welcome to Travel Through Time, the podcast made in partnership with Ace Cultural Tours. Hello, I'm Artemis, and in this week's episode, we're travelling back to one hot summer in 1970s East Berlin. My guide is the historian and journalist Katia Hoyer, whose fantastic new book, Beyond the Wall, charts the history of East Germany from 1949 to 1990, and takes in the country's rich cultural and social history, as well as the violence and repression which is so often associated with it. Katya, thank you so much for joining us today on Travels Through Time. It's such a pleasure to speak to you about your new book, Beyond the Wall. Um, yeah, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. I always uh, enjoy talking about it. <laughs> I kind of wanted to start by asking you a bit about how you came to write Beyond the Wall and, um, and maybe to ask you a bit about something that we were speaking about just before we started recording. You grew up in East Germany um, and I wanted to know how much of your own memories of the country were you, or the time, were you drawing on when you were writing this book, as well as your academic research, um, but stories from families and your own memories, yeah, did they play a big part of your writing process? They did. I mean, I was I was still a child when the Berlin Wall fell, so I can't claim to have kind of personal experiences of any kind of political nature or, you know, in the way that an adult would reflect on things. But people tend to forget that, you know, just because the, the wall came down, it didn't mean that everybody kind of left and was reborn and, and was a different person. I mean, you still grew up with the same parents, teachers, neighbours, you know, all the adults around you who were shaped by the by the system that they were born into and by the by the experiences that they had. And so, you know, I grew up in this kind of shadow, I'd say, of the of the state of East Germany and, and its legacy. And people would say things like, in East German times, you know, and, and then they kind of think back of something and you always wondered what that would have been like to sort of live an entire life in this in the state that now vanished. So whilst I have written this as an adult and as an academic and as a historian, and it isn't a personal history of the GDR, there's certainly a, a kind of personal curiosity there. So this idea that I wanted to find out myself almost as get as close as I could to finding out what this what the state was like and what it would have been like to live in it. That leads me really nicely onto my next question that I was really keen to ask you about because I was really struck by the first opening chapters of the book are extremely violent history. I mean, really violent is the only word I could think of to describe it, really. The kind of origins of the East German state, both the the men who made it and their experiences, both under the Nazis and in the Soviet Union, being persecuted for their politics and aiding the persecution of others. And the things that, that you go into detail about the rape that German women experienced at the hands of the Red Army um, after the Second World War. And it made me think about this concept of intergenerational trauma. I was wondering if that was something that you had thought about when you were writing the book, that there's this legacy of really dark, traumatic things. How much is that influencing the rest of the East German state's history up in the period that you were writing about? Well, it was certainly a conscious choice to go back further back in time before the East German state is actually set up in 1949. That doesn't normally happen. Most most books or 
kind of articles about East Germany will start with the state's foundation. But I don't think it's possible to understand why the state was set, set up and under what circumstances it was set up unless you understand the kind of violent world out of which it was created. I mean, you have obviously the Second World War with all of the violence that comes with that, as you just said, the the mass rape of, of women, particularly in what was then going to become East Germany in that area, because that was just where the Soviets happened to conquer, or the part of Germany that the Soviets um, invaded. But on top of that, you've also, as you mentioned, got the persecution of, of communists and social democrats and socialists throughout their their own biographies, basically. So this goes further back than um, the Nazis, which you could argue is kind of where the persecution was. Well, it's not just where you could argue where persecution was at its most extreme, but also throughout the 1920s. You know, they've got these really violent street battles between the, the communists and the, and the Nazis and also some of the World War One veterans. During the First World War, many socialists sat in prison for their pacifist beliefs. Um, before that, they were persecuted in the in the German Empire. So these are people who come with their own personal psychological and political baggage and then form the state out of that. And in East Germany, of course, you've got now people living in the state who were not politicians, but have also experienced a good deal of violence, be that the women um, who stayed at home or the men who were off fighting and come back badly damaged if at all you know from from soviet captivity um in the in the early years of the uh, of the east german state so i think that's relevant and it's highly necessary to explain that and when you were doing your research were the things that you came across where you felt these people be they civilians or politicians were making decisions that were influenced by that history of psychological trauma yeah, I think even down to the you know surveillance state that East Germany is famous for the the uh, so-called Ministry of State Security or better known as the as the Stasi, uh, was in my opinion in part uh, a result of the of the paranoia of the sense of persecution that that people still had when you're constantly when you spend your entire life looking over your shoulder you know where there's somebody there that might have some harm in mind towards you or the kind of thing that you you believe in. That doesn't just go away when you're in your 40s, 50s, 60s, you know, at the time that these men come back into Germany and set up the state. So I think that does play a role in in the sense that people never quite trust the, the German population, the East German population, and, and there's constant there's a constant attempt to survey them, to to monitor them, to control them. And I think that's partially a result of, of the experiences that people made. You mentioned in your first answer about how part of your motivation for writing the book was wanting to get closer to something that you feel like you were you had connection with lots of connection with but were just slightly on the other side of because of being a child when the Berlin Wall came down do do you feel like you've achieved that through writing the book and researching the book do you feel closer now to that history I really do and I think the advantage of being a historian and doing this is that you have a much much broader picture like you know rather than just having my own experience I was able to talk to a lot of people um the East German connection helped because I could literally go back to friends family neighbors colleagues you know and turn around and say I need to speak to somebody who was a policeman in the 1970s and they'd go oh I know somebody you know and you'd, you'd just go and speak to ordinary people and in that respect, I think, you know, you have now got the, the time difference to reflect on these things. You've got the ability to collate a much, much broader picture. This has allowed me in a way, I think, to mentally sort of travel back in that time, try and understand why people did the things that they did, 
um, and try and see it from different perspectives as well. So I, I do feel I have now got a, a much, much more broader, wider understanding of, of what it would have been like to live in the state than I did before I set out on this on this journey. And that's really interesting you say that because I was really one of my favourite things about reading Beyond the Wall was how you often use these little like glimpses into moments of or specific people not necessarily really famous people just ordinary people something that happened to them um and you use that story to sort of reflect a broader point that you're making about the history of the country at the time so a girl wears a blue denim skirt that her uncle has sent over to her from west germany and it's levi's and she's wearing it with her german youth shirt and she wears it to school and the teacher has to take her to one side and say it's not appropriate and it's just this like tiny moment but it tells you so much are those the sort of stories that you were when you saying you're interviewing friends of friends or neighbors or those are the kind of stories that's where you were finding them yeah, absolutely. And it's also something that you will not find in written sources or in textbooks. I mean, you know, the, the this example that you just gave, the teacher did that on a one to one basis. She didn't, you know, shout at the girl. She kind of just wanted she had her best in mind, actually. She was, you know, trying to get her into university and into further education and was sort of saying to her, you know, look, just tone it down a bit. And, and you wouldn't find a record of that. She didn't write it down. She didn't complain to the to the kind of school leadership or the parents about it. These things you only find out when you speak to people. They are not something that, you know, kind of is big enough or important enough in the minds of people to um, to write down. And I would say even to the point where when official uh, sources like, say, museums or archives do kind of oral history projects, that woman that I interviewed, she would never, ever have gone to a museum and thought, you know, my story is worth recording because to her, these are kind of normal everyday memories. These things you only find out if you go to somebody and say, you know, tell me about your life, then you, you get a glimpse of what they are about to tell you and, and you ask questions that probe for these things. But, you know, that's what I find so interesting about uh, doing this project is that the people who were there are, are still around and you can find out these intriguing details that if you go further back in time, you know, would be lost otherwise. Mm. And had you interviewed the student or the teacher? The student. The student. And how many interviews do you think you did over the course of the process of writing the book? Uh, it's hard to tell because there are so many informal ones, uh, you know, over the years as well, where I kind of just remembered and then I just quickly call, call them up and say, you know how about 10 years ago you told me about this? Uh, would you mind if I if I put this into my book? You know, and they'd say, oh, that's not important enough or, you know, that's not really interesting. Are you sure you want to use it? But they'd allow me to use it. So it's hard to, uh, certainly dozens, but it's hard to pin down an exact number because I did formal interviews as well where I sort of sat down with people, recorded the whole thing, transcribed it and, and you know, kind of went into a formal process. But on top of that, there's just years worth of kind of casual chats where, where I would just then carefully ask people if I if they were happy for their life story to be to be published, at least in the extracts. <laughs> I'm sure they were. <laughs> it's exciting to realise that your life experience and your memories are actually history, even if they seem very everyday. I think it's time for us to get into the time travelling section of our conversation. So Katya, if you could travel through time, what year would you like to travel to? 1973 would be my year. I was a child still when the when the wall came down and I've so often wondered, even when I was younger, what I would have made of the state that I was born into had I been born into it a few years earlier and kind of lived through it in the way that other people did. So this would be my chance to go back. Um, if I could pick an age, I'd probably be sort of late teenage years, I think, just to be at this kind of 
point where you're still idealistic about things, you still have ideas and, and see what whether I would have sort of rebelled against the system and thought I needed to get out of it because it's so stuck in its ways and so stuffy, or whether I would have been one of those people that said, you know what, we're on the right tracks here. This is a much more progressive system and, you know, we need to we need to continue um, making it the best kind of form of socialism that it could be. So I have absolutely no idea what I would have made of this state and, and I would like to go back to find out. Well, it's a, it's a wonderful idea. I can kind of see us walking through the streets of East Berlin in the early in the early 70s um, observing what was going on so that takes us really nicely to our first scene if we're walking down the street in East Berlin it's 1973 where are we going first? Well I'd like to go to a specific day if I may and this this is the 29th of, of March of 1973 because one of the most anticipated films uh, of East German cinema came out on that day and this this is kind of the I want, I want to go to the premiere of it and be there when when it first became a sort of cult film. Um, so this is in the the cinema I want to go to is the Cosmos Cinema. Um, it's a sort of relatively newish building still, huge great big foyer as you walk in with a sort of glass fronted outlook onto the onto the Karl Marx Allee, fittingly in Berlin. Um, this kind of huge Soviet style boulevard that that goes into Berlin. Um, and I want to see the the premiere of um the film called The Legend of Paul and Paula which, uh, as I say, sort of became a, a classic of, of East German cinema. And for, for people who aren't aficionados of East German cinema, could you tell <laughs> could you tell us a bit about The Legend of Paul and Paula and, and why it became such a cult classic? Well, first of all, it was highly uh, sort of risque at the time. There's lots and lots of uh, kind of quite overtly sexual content in it it's it's a sort of tragic comedy so you know the the sort of heroes of it are paul and paula a sort of young couple if you will or they become a couple as part of the film um but what makes it so risque is that they weren't a couple to start with so paula is a is a single mum um a little bit kind of stressed with her life trying to work and, and raise her young children at the same time and Paul is a, a sort of young professional in East Berlin, married, has got a son. They they are kind of polar opposites. So Paula lives in this shabby pre-war block that hasn't been updated and is literally falling apart. The film makes a big thing out of old crumbly buildings falling down. And there's a there's a kind of ongoing theme with that um, about where the GDR is in the 1970s, as well as it's kind of almost overt criticism of the state. Um, whilst Paul is kind of really successful, lives in this sleek new block, literally just opposite where Paula lives, um, and they meet as part of this um, story, but it all goes terribly, terribly wrong and ends up in almost kind of Shakespearean tragedy at the end, and it's 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 very moving as a film. I mean, when the film ended, the premiere that I want to go to, when it ended, there was 20 solid minutes of frenetic applause. People were so moved by it, you know, both laughing and crying basically throughout the film. You know, they, they sort of felt they wanted to, to express their, their emotions in that way. And, and throughout its history, 3.3 uh, million people watched it. You know, when, when you think the state had a population of 16 million and 3.3 people watched it, that's uh, quite something. And it, it was kind of rescued from censorship by, by Eric Honecker, the general secretary of the ruling party, the leader of the state himself, who said, actually, you know, we need to get young people on side. Let's let's give them a little bit of excitement. Even though this film is quite critical of East Germany, we need to have it. So I think there's that would have been an interesting moment to go to to see what that was like. Mm, absolutely. 
Would are you a fan of the film? Would you been one of the people clapping for twenty minutes at the end? I think so. Yeah, I mean, it is even even when you watch it today, you think, "Whoa, that was quite you know quite out there uh, in terms of the way it takes you to like through this emotional roller coaster." And as I say, even you know, it's, it's the drama of it. It's it's the people in it. It's really well scripted. Uh, the music is quite interesting. You've got a, a band called the Poodies who uh, became one of the most successful bands in the GDR. And this is kind of their breakthrough moments. And their music is like through the through the whole film, you kind of hear it in the background. Um, it's cinema, cinematography is brilliant as well. So, you know, it's it's. I think it's, it's stood the test of time and people would still be quite affected by it today, I feel. And how reflective was it of other films at the time that were being made or did it really stand apart from them? Other than the sex in it, was it controversial that it was critical of the GDR? I think, yes. I mean, there, there were other films where that was the case as well. Some were banned, some weren't. But I think it's interesting in that it it's typical of a time when Eric Honegger, who had just become two years earlier in 1971 the, the, the general secretary, much younger than his predecessor, Walter Albrecht, who had run the country for 20 years. And there was a genuine sense that things were moving on, things were modernising, uh, living standards were being raised at, at rapid pace. You know, there was a sense of progress. And I think this film, with its kind of really playful and, and provocative nature, fit into the, the kind of zeitgeist, if you will. You know, that that you could do these things now. They They were kind of banned both from a moral point of view and from a political point of view previously and suddenly you could do this thing it was also an outlet of rebellion you know your parents wouldn't have been best pleased I mean your problem at this point wasn't the state this would have been your parents saying no you can't go and watch this because it's too too crass and too out there and it's in its kind of themes of adultery and things like that as well um so you know I think it, it fits into kind of a period that many people remember as, as an exciting what if moment within the East German um, story as a state and what kind of man was Honecker? He's recently become leader under slightly, is it fair to say, dubious circumstances? I mean, that's a, not maybe not dubious, but maybe you could tell a bit of the story of how he came to be the leader of the GDR and what kind of leader he was. Yeah, I mean, his predecessor, Walter Albrecht, for a long time, they the, the two of them, they had a like mentor-student kind of relationship. They're about a generation apart, and Honecker was very much the junior partner, the understudy, um, and actually stuck with him even through really, really difficult times. Like There was a mass uprising, for example, in 1953, where, so 20 years earlier, Albrecht was nearly ousted, and Honecker was the only one who stood by him within the Politburo. The rest all said, you know what, you caused this uprising with your stubborn and with your unwillingness to reform and Honecker was the one who said actually you know it wasn't your fault there were other reasons there and, and stuck by him and then you know we're sort of fast forwarding nearly 20 years in, in, in 1971 Albrecht is, is an old man at this point in his 70s and is getting frail and stubborn and, and old and Honecker sees his chance here and, and ruthlessly ousts him from power uh, colluding with with Moscow in the process, so he constantly sort of travels back and forth and and uh, makes sure that Albrecht is kind of ousted from power. But he then goes out to the people and says, you know, I understand that this kind of stuffy old period, this consolidation period of the GDR has come to an end, um, and we need to now do things. And he instantly puts measures in place to increase living standards. Uh, consumer goods are suddenly available when that was difficult before. 
people now have like radios and and TVs and cars and on fridges they even lead over the over West Germany at one point, which is is great cause for kind of you know a whole propaganda campaign. You know that that more people have fridges in in East Germany than in West Germany. So you know I think Honecker at this point that, that very much changes later in, in the eighties. You know he's mostly known then in people's minds, including in the West, as kind of the stuffy old apparatchik who's stubborn and doesn't want to change. That's very much the case in the eighties, but in the early 70s he stands for excitement and progress and something's going to happen from your interviews with people at this time who were around at this time did you get a sense that they were on board with this that they you know you could kind of imagine how doing something like allowing the legend of paul and paula to be decensored and and be played some people might view it as very much just a kind of like a plaster over a deeper problem and or was it a sense that like that he genuinely was bringing in better change and that the standard of living was genuinely rising yeah i mean it it was genuinely rising and things were were actually getting better and there was certainly not a sense that you know this country is still in crisis in the way that you had it in the 1950s where it could have really disappeared off the off the face of the earth you know in, in this uprising for example that i just talked about or just because of economic collapse and in the 1970s, East Germany has got the highest living standards in the communist world. You know, whilst, of course, consumer products wise, it's still behind most Western countries. But things like car ownership, for example, yes, of course, they're still driving around in the old uh, Trabant cars, two stroke kind of engines that are far um, uh, kind of inferior to, to most Western um, models. But at the same time, you know, you still get from A to B, they give you a sense of freedom. Most working class people had never had a car before. You know, Hitler's kind of car program didn't work out. In the Weimar Republic in the 1920s, you didn't have cars for ordinary people. So, you know, people were still genuinely excited about having these things and and seeing, you know, in the main, that there's a a sense of progress. Like, you know, they thought back to their own lives 10 years earlier and they could see that things were moving on. So there Mm -hmm. is a sense that, you know, give it another 10 years and we might be able to to catch up and have the same living standards. So, you know, and many people also were quite aware of the fact that this really extensive welfare state that they were enjoying was more comprehensive than than is the case in Western countries. There was, for instance, no unemployment at all. There's kind of full, you know, because it's a socialist economy, full employment. You never had to worry about your, your jobs. Uh, rent and food and transport and entertainment and these things were heavily subsidised. You know, at no point would you have to sit down and think, can I really afford this theatre ticket or can I really go to the cinema or, you know, even holidays were subsidised and and you could kind of organise them through your workplace. So, you know, people had rather comfortable lives and if you could live with the fact that you couldn't leave the country and if you could live with the fact that there was mass surveillance and, you know, you kind of withdrew yourself to your own private life, then many people experience this time as as a rather comfortable one. That's really interesting. Just to go back to the film as well, I was interested to ask you a bit about how um, reflective the film was of a kind of East German culture specifically rather than as distinct from West Germany at the time. Um, is the film is the film distinctly East German? And if so, how? I think it is in the sense that, you know, it makes a big deal out of the surroundings that people are in. You know, it shows the decay, for example, of East Berlin in, its, in the old structures that were still there whilst these kind of big new prefab buildings are also being stamped out of the ground. So both of that, for instance, gives you a distinct sense that you are in East Berlin, that you can't look around in the film and not notice where you are. It's not anonymous, the the surroundings. 
Um, then you have the the constant backdrop of the Pudis and, and their kind of German songs, and, and they are an interesting phenomenon as well. When in 1970, so three years before this, they were a pretty obscure little pub band that was kind of traveling around in, in Saxony and playing Western, like the Beatles or the Rolling Stones or whatever, Western songs as cover versions in the bars. And then the authorities found out about that and said, like, you know, basically banned them because they were so successful in doing that, that they created like a frenzy and noise and everything wherever they went. And that was too chaotic and uncomfortable for the authorities. So they banned them. But then they sat down with them. So the Poonies went back to the authorities and said, well, what is it that we've got to do? So you let us play. And they said, well, why don't you write your own songs, first of all, rather than kind of bringing this Western culture into into our country and, and write them in German. And then we see where we are. And this, bizarrely, this form of censorship then made them more creative because they had to go away and write their own songs and write them in German. Uh, and this kind of created their success. Um, and in 1973, with this film and, and also other events and concerts that they that they were allowed to play once they started writing their own thing, they became successful. There's no way that when they were still kind of singing Beatles songs, you know, like everybody else did, um, that that would have allowed them to stand out in the way that they did later. So in many ways, it is distinctly East German, this film, in, in the way that it's set up. You, you couldn't watch it and not know where you are whilst you're watching it. Hello there, it's Peter here and it's time for a word about our sponsors, Ace Cultural Tours. Ace are a much-loved and long-established business that are based in the award-winning Stapleford Granary Building just south of the University City of Cambridge. I recently spent a day up there with them, seeing what they do and how they build their award-winning tours. Now these tours are split into categories like archaeology, art and architecture, houses and gardens, music nature, and there are more than a hundred of them setting off over the year ahead. Let me give you a flavour of just a few. In May, for instance, there's the Jewels of the Loire, medieval and renaissance chateaus, an eight-day adventure into some stirring French architecture. Or, in June, you can join a trip to the spectacular Bach Festival in Leipzig, led by the expert tour director, Richard Wigmore. Or, if you fancy heading in the opposite direction, then in mid-July, there's a five-day archaeology tour to one of the most majestic Roman monuments in the whole British Isles. That's Hadrian's Wall. To find out more about any of these and many, many more besides, I really do suggest that you explore their website at www.aceculturaltours.co.uk. It's the perfect place for the culturally curious. God, that's so fascinating. That's such a feels like such a contradiction in terms, but really, yeah, so interesting. I think that leads us on really nicely to the second scene that we're going to visit in 1973. We've left the cinema. Where are we going to next? July, late July, um, same year, 1973. Um, but we stay in East Berlin um, and go to Alexanderplatz, which um, is kind of a central great big square in that was set up after the Second World War when the city was, of course, completely flattened. And the East German authorities thought, brilliant, here's a tabula rasa and we can create something new here. And they created something akin to the Red Square in Moscow, like a great big open rectangle of, of kind of concrete, if you will, with sort of a fountain, for instance, in the middle and like a great big clock that's still there, which shows you all the times around the world and, and pieces of art, mosaics and things. 
uh, but it was meant to be an event place. Um, and they used this in 1973 for, for a truly spectacular event that I'd love to attend, which is the 10th World Festival of Youth and Students, which was held under the rather um, political mod- uh, motto for anti-imperialist solidarity, peace and friendship, which sounds really boring, but it really wasn't. I mean, uh, you know, imagine a festival ground. People are there from 140 countries speaking all sorts of languages. Um, you had 8 million people in total descend on, on East Berlin in the, in this in the in the time that the festival was on late July early August 1973 um and there's all sorts of things uh, there was uh, kind of public debates concerts um floats like parades going around games being played music being played spontaneous jam sessions it was kind of like imagine like Woodstock or Glastonbury, but like the East German version, sometimes called the Red Woodstock, this event. You know, people got drunk, they drank alcohol all day. It was a really warm summer as well in in, uh, 1973. So I find it really interesting how an event that is kind of set up by the Free German Youth, this kind of mass youth organization that that the uh, authorities had had founded in the 1940s um, after the Second World War, is now in a position where it's young people set up this festival as their moment they want to sit there together with people from all around the world including all western countries there's even a delegation there of the cdu the the christian democratic union angela merkel's uh, party so this is like the german conservative party basically west german conservative party they sent their own youth delegation over um to this event as well so you had lots of people from from britain from the us from everywhere um, Angela Davies, famously the the kind of uh, communist activist, black communist activist in the US, she came over, she led the American delegation. So that brought a sense of excitement that this famous woman who had just been released from prison came over. So, you know, it's it's a moment, I think, for the that many people don't associate with the, with the GDR when they think back to this uh, part of history, which created a real sense of excitement, a real buzz. And I would just love to have sat in between the, you know, the music with with a bottle of beer in my hand, kind of discussing politics with with people coming over from West Germany, you know, who's got the better system and why and, and those kinds of things. So I think that was a really exciting moment. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, just hearing you describe it, I feel like we're there and I can really hear and smell and... and I'm like, not sure you want to smell all of, all of it, though. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of teenagers I feel like I'm there. <laughs> getting drunk in the hot summer of 1973. But we would be, we would be teenagers mm. there as well, because you said you wanted to be 18, so that we're... So we're part of it. <laughs> no, it does sound, it sounds really fun. How unusual was it to have foreign visitors visit the GDR? I mean, was this, was this like the first time that a, a teenager in East Berlin might have met someone from, met someone from the USA or met someone from West Germany? Yeah, it was always easier to travel from the West into uh, East Germany. So many people who had relatives, for example, in West Germany, they would have come over um, and and visited them. For for instance, there was also it's not something that people think about a lot, but there was also a tourism kind of industry in East Germany. I mean, it was cheaper to you know buy stuff there and to to sort of go on holiday there. So there's for instance the really like beautiful stretch of Baltic Sea, kind of white sand beaches in the in the north that you can't really compare with with the sort of North Sea beaches in the in the West. So, you know, there were West Germans actually going on holiday in, in the East that happened. Also many left wing people. So famously, for example, um Jeremy Corbyn and, and Diane Abbott went on, on a little motorcycle tour 
for East Germany in their in the in their kind of wild younger years. Um, so you know you had kind of politically interested Western socialists as well who either would come over themselves or would send their children into East German kind of holiday camps, for example, to to kind of immerse them in the ideology. So that happened as well. And then in the 1980s later, you get this kind of real attempt for revenue creation and also for prestige purposes to get Western tourists into kind of specifically East German sites. So Martin Luther, for example, who translated the Bible into German, um, and of course, thereby you could argue led to the or contributed to the creation of of kind of the split of the Christian Christian Church into Protestant and and Catholic um, is therefore of course a huge figure, and people came over to see Vapor Castle where he translated the the Bible which had been renovated with state money. Or you had Prussia, you know, this kind of sense that Prussian history is East German history, um, and so people came over to Potsdam to see the Prussian palaces and things like that. Um, so it did happen, but certainly not on that scale. So this is quite extraordinary when you get, you know, millions, literally millions of young people descending onto the East German capital. And it made people feel that they were suddenly important. Their little state was kind of catapulted onto the world stage. And there were all of these people from from countries that people may have not even heard of before. You know, this is kind of tiny countries that may have even just been newly created, for example, you know, we're still talking the post-colonial era, for instance, in Africa and Asia as well, and many people from the countries that are now slowly becoming kind of socialist-leading countries are also over, kind of slowly still coming out of kind of this revolutionary phase that East Germany had lost. So many people that I, for instance, listened to and spoke to said these people still had this kind of revolutionary zeal about them, They, they were excited about what was going on in their country, whilst ours had kind of settled and become boring so there's that element too. It kind of is reminding me a bit about the feeling that there was in London when the 2012 Olympics was on that you kind of felt like everyone's in a really good mood and and everyone's kind of showing the best of London and it felt quite fleeting that feeling it's quite ephemeral. To what extent do you think that would have been the case here that this was a particularly particularly good summer particularly great weather um, everyone's really excited to show off where they where they're from but then that feeling passes when everyone went home or what do you think? Yeah, I think so. I mean, especially as people would have, you know, had to go like back to work, back to school, back to university, whatever. And you just sink back into your kind of ordinary life again. But I think what stayed was a sense of the GDR having settled as a state and being taken seriously on the world stage, because it's also in the same summer um, that Walter Orbeck died. So Eric Honecker had already been in charge for two years, but Walter Orbeck died right during this festival. And the festival was only very, very briefly interrupted just to announce his death, but it wasn't aborted or cancelled. The, the GDR could live without its founding father, effectively, and, and had got over him to a point where, you know, it had moved on and had modernised. And I think that's part of the reason. It also, the GDR was was admitted into the United Nations alongside, uh, at the same time as West Germany, um, just a, a few days after the festival. It then started to build relations with countries all over the world. You have you have East German embassies um, in the end in over 200 countries. So, you know, people may have gone back to their ordinary kind of, you know, lives and it may have felt a bit flat in the weeks after the festival, as it does now when you, you know, spend a nice summer somewhere and then you go back and you think, oh, um, that was nice while it lasted. But I think what did last was a sense of having it st- established itself as a country and as a kind of, national identity people forget that this is a really random division within germany you know to just draw a line within a country and go right you're now in two separate countries 
And it took a while for like an East German identity to set in. And I think that was one of those moments where that happened. And that was something that lasted. And if you were going to define that East German, like that East German national identity, how would you define it? What were the sort of key characteristics of it? Well, it is a bit tricky because in some instances you have it and some you don't. So if we if we briefly go into one year later, 1974, that's allowed. You don't have worry. <laughs> <laughs> you have the uh, the football World Cup in West Germany, which West Germany wins. Um, so this this is you know a huge moment, of course, for for West Germany. In the group stages, East and West Germany actually played each other. It was the first and only time that this happened. And East Germany won that, despite not, not making it past the group stages afterwards. But that was a moment where East Germans were really joyful about the fact that they'd just beaten West Germany, even though they had already you know, quite a, f- a fearsome reputation as a football team. And then West Germany went on to win it. And yet you'd hear lots of lots of people cheer you know, in the final when West Germany actually won it. And I asked people about that and said, like, wasn't that a bit weird? Like you're cheering in the group stages when they are defeated by by your national team. And then yet you're cheering again in the final when they win. And and they said, well, you know, the, these footballers were German heroes to them. Like people like Franz Beckenberg at Müller, you know, people would have like posters up on the walls and, and the game was shown on on television. Um, and, and, you know, you could you could listen to it on the radio. And this wasn't like something that people had to hide from as such. So there's also still an all German identity at the same time. So it's almost like, I suppose, having like your regional allegiance and then kind of a vague sense of of German national consciousness still at the same time. Mm, That's so interesting. And it's so interesting how football is particularly good, I think, at bringing out those those interesting divisions of of your identity and what you align with. It's... um... That's really that's so interesting. I wanted to talk to you a bit about Angela Davis because she's such an kind of irresistible figure. I feel like we can't just like drop mm. her in and then like leave <laughs> her leave her there. Um, what was the relationship between you know left wing radicals all over the world and the GDR? Was it seen as a kind of not necessarily a utopia is probably too strong a word, but an ideal that other countries should be striving towards? I think so. I mean, the the appeal, I think, of the GDR to people like Angela Davis or, as I said, even, you know, British uh, kind of socialists was that it was a Western country culturally. So something that you could kind of identify with, you know, somebody would, would look like you vaguely do the same things that you do and not be a completely different culture um, and yet live in this in the socialist state. I mean, you know, apart from that, the Soviet Union had previously been the the kind of only real manifestation of the ideology that these people believed in. And now you've got a state that seems to have made it work without being completely weird. Like, you know, as, as in, I mean, weird as in strange, you know, in, in the sense that you would go to, say, Russia and you'd feel very out of place, but you wouldn't feel the same way in East Germany. Um, and so, you know, take take Angela Davis as an example. You know, she once she was released, she'd sort of go and, and travel around the, the sort of eastern block and, and uh, you know, build affiliations because there she had kind of, you know, political support effectively for her ideology. I mean, it worked both ways in that Eric Honecker, for instance, was absolutely de- delighted to have this uh, kind of extremely charismatic radical black um you know activists there woman woman as well you know who kind of represented something that they were striving towards but was american and therefore kind of 
important, exotic, different at the same time because she was Western and represented this kind of Americanness at the same time. Another good example is a is a singer who I talk about in the book as well, Dean Dean Reed, who was from Colorado and and a very unlikely. Uh, kind of sort of symbol of socialism, if you will. But he played a tour in South America and became very kind of politically radicalized as a result of that um, and, and sat down with Che Guevara during that time and had kind of apparently like a, a kind of drinking session through the night with him and, and they talked about politics and he became very, very uh, socialist slash communist as a result of that. And during his tour, so he then also went and toured the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc, um, met an East German and, and married her and then settled down in East Germany. And that was, of course, brilliant for the regime. They now had this kind of cowboy who was playing in, in kind of Western movies and, and, and as an actor, but then also singing these like country songs in, in English and German. <laughs> um, so they had their own like communist cowboy. And that, again, is a perfect sort of hybrid of, of communist ideology, but Western allure, um, if you will, and, and brought that into the GDR. So it's these sort of idealist kind of political activists who see something in the GDR that they find more relatable perhaps than, you know, say countries that are culturally a bit further afield. And when you were, I was thinking of um, the example as well you give of, um, which I found absolutely fascinating about the Levi's jeans, the absolute craze for Levi's jeans. American culture is hugely popular and influential all over the world um, at this time. But I'm wondering, is there, was there anything specific about how it was thought of um, and adored in the GDR that was particularly was different or you know because there's a sense of it being slightly forbidden or what what do you think I think that's definitely the case I mean it stands it, it literally couldn't be more American you know in terms of people see it in in like western movies and and it's also still a, a form of rebellion against one's kind of parents and the and I mean the same is true for West Germans you know if you'd like worn jeans in the 1960s your parents would have raised their eyebrows as well if you were in the West so there's still this like youthful element in it as well where it's a casual item of clothing that stands for like freedom sitting on the you know back of a horse and riding through the prairie you know deciding your own fate and that kind of thing um then it's American of course on top of it and it and it's very difficult to come by in the in the GDR. The irony is, of course, that um, Eric Honecker realizes all of that. As I said, he wants to be the person who does things differently and who who kind of loosens up this kind of very rigid state to start with. And he goes as far as to import original Levi's jeans on state money um, from the US directly from from uh, the the manufacturer. Um, at one point, one million over one million in one go. Again, when you think, you know, you've got a population of 16 million, uh, that is quite something to, to sort of spend the, you know, few resources that he's got on that. And it causes an absolute frenzy every time that they are available. They they Eventually, they go to a system whereby they, rather than putting them in the shops and having the shops overrun by people who are trying to, to buy them, they distribute them out to... Uh, like factories and workplaces and universities and they each get like a, even the Stasi gets like a little contingent of, of American genes to sort of sell to its um, employees um, so that people can't basically stockpile them that was the plan behind it and, and people can then go with their little ID card to say I work here can I please have a pair of jeans and, and they bought them 
the GDR then goes on to, to make its own genes and, and sort of sets up genes manufacturing uh, plants in its own country. The problem is once again resourcing things because the you need obviously quite, quite sort of high quality cotton, which of course doesn't grow in, in Germany, can't grow cotton in, in every condition. It needs to be in a particular climate. And so they have to, they end up importing them from the Soviet Union, which itself doesn't have enough for its own production. So it's kind of the, the lesser quality stuff they give off to the um to the east german authorities so the genes that they produced themselves were sort of a bit stiff not quite right in terms of the cut and people bought them because they had to but they weren't as um desirable as the as the original not least because it wasn't actually from the west there wasn't this kind of idea you you get it out of the packet and you sniff it and it's just come from the us from america um so that was all very exciting to a lot of people yeah i mean state subsidized levi's jeans just sounds like something out of one of those memes which is like this is the future that liberals want like <laughs> yeah absolutely <laughs> that's what it reminded me of a contradiction in terms certainly <laughs> i think we should head to our final scene it's something that you alluded to um just now um something that happened during this uh, festival and that is the death of walter albrecht um what did that mean for east germany we've spoken about it a bit but what what did his death mean for east germany well, I wouldn't want to kind of stand, you know, by his bedside as he as he died. I would imagine that wasn't a particularly uh, interesting place to be. But I think the actual state funeral is. So I would want to go to the seventh of August, um, on the and, and sort of join the queues uh, on the Max Engels Platz in front of the state council building where he lay in state, um, for people to sort of come and say their their uh, last respects. Because what I'd want to do really is talk to people in that queue, a bit like I suppose like we've seen it with with the Queen here, where people were having this joint experience of queuing for hours and hours at a time, bonding with the people around them, talking to them. Everybody has got their individual reason why they're, why they're there. Some see it as a historic event. They just want to be there and say for years to come, I was there when this happened. Um, I was part of it. Other people who are genuinely upset that this person has died and, and you want to come and, and have a last moment sort of with them and, and say goodbye to them. Um, and it was quite hard to find like sources on that moment, which may be a bit of a peculiar moment to go back to, but I think it really says something about a state and, and the people in it, how they react when the when the leaders die um, because of the relationship between the state and the and the person themselves um so when Walter Ulbricht first died there certainly wasn't a sense that like this is the big historical moment here you know there wasn't a sense of shock he'd been old he hadn't um led the country for two years he died he wasn't kind of around even in Berlin he was in the guest house um of, of the kind of party where they where they invited guests normally so this is on the fringes of Berlin the fringes of the festival the fringes of life really in the in the GDR. When you kind of look around now at the, on the on the Marx Engels Platz, you see people there, and I think you'd imagine some people just chatting to each other, some people would would be genuinely distraught. One source that I found was that that somebody told a reporter that he felt that the that Walter Albrecht had achieved more than a little, you know, and he wanted to come and, and say that to him and say thank you for kind of setting up the state. Um and even then as the coffin is sort of taken through 
Berlin towards towards last resting place, the streets were all lined with with people as well. The authorities themselves hadn't anticipated the response. Um, so Walter Obig lay in state much longer than they'd originally planned because of the long queues and they, they didn't want to cut them short. And then they were also surprised at this kind of very somber response of the Berliners who were lining up um, along the streets and, and seeing kind of the last procession um, to the to, to the cemetery. Um, and then even the ceremony itself seems to have been very sort of dignified. The national anthem was played, then some Beethoven, which was performed by, by Dresden's Philharmonic Orchestra, which was even at the time kind of of world renown as well, which which they retained from kind of the previous tradition of that orchestra there. Um, Ulbricht was in an oak coffin, which was draped in the GDR flag. And, you know, there was this kind of very solemn sense of saying goodbye to a part of GDR history really to its first half he was in charge for the first 20 years and they took that origin phase of East Germany to the grave effectively and, and I would have really been intrigued as to the atmosphere um, of that moment. I mean I think when I was reading the book I was I was taken aback in some way by the reaction because of your the way you introduce him as a character at the very start this quite hardy extremely hardy communist who survived Stalin's Russia and you don't survive Stalin's Russia without being not the nicest person mm. in the world you know <laughs> yeah no you're absolutely right and the fact that he was so wooden and unrelatable as well like you you hear stories or you kind of when I say here I mean you know I sort of literally hear people's voices in my head when I read sources um which is maybe more of an insight into my mind than than into the realities at the time uh but for instance there were stories of his early comrades who say so for instance one that that springs to mind is, is this is before the first world war they were all off to um a sort of communist rally um and on the train and all really excited. And then once it was all out of the way and, and there hadn't been much police repression, they were quite relieved on the way back and everyone drank some beer and joked. And apart from Walter Ulbricht, who sat in the corner and, and continued talking about kind of socialist ideology and wanted to continue with the arguments, you know, that they'd just been through for the whole day whilst the rest of the young men on that train just wanted to chill out and were just relieved and, and happy to be back out and, and joked around. And that was him to a T. Like, he was just not particularly personable, couldn't read a room very well. This is also why he falls out with the Soviets more and more, because he just ends up, like, lecturing them. There's, for instance, a really uh, quite amusing moment where uh, Brezhnev comes to visit um, and expects kind of hospitality and, and Ulbricht to be, like, the disciple, basically, the junior partner in this constellation and Ulbricht will not stop lecturing Brezhnev about how great life is in the GDR and how the living standards are so much higher than the Soviet Union and he even offers you know we can send experts over that can teach you how to do things and Brezhnev just gets really really angry and eventually just like gets up and gets up to his room and says he's got a headache and he's got to go to bed um, because he can't stand like you know being lectured any longer so he was he was not a particularly likable individual at all so this makes it all the more interesting why you know east german east germans feel after these two years that they've lost well not lost necessarily but they've they're taking someone to the grave who i think stands for more than himself i think he stands for this consolidation period of the gdr the fact that people now feel that the kind of hardship and the and the chaos of the early years is over they don't have to constantly worry about having food on the shelves, for example. Yes, there may not be the type of food that they want. There's constantly shortages of kind of fruit, coffee, chocolate, anything that you have to buy on the world market. But at the same time, nobody is starving and, and nobody feels like, you know, a, a kind of deep economic crisis is just around the corner. And I think 
that's the thing that that man was was referring to he was sort of saying well you know he may not be the nicest individual in the world but at the same time we are where we are now um and and you know there's a sense of taking that that early phase of east germany to the grave i think Hmm. And the three scenes that we've vis- visited today, I think they've each been quite positive in their own way, like exciting and fun, thrilling, but also contemplative and but kind of a positive version or view of the GDR. And it was making me wonder, what do you think people get wrong about East Germany when, when for example, when we talk about it in the West, where I am now, what do you think people get wrong about about it well i certainly uh in the book don't try to create an entirely positive picture of the gdr this isn't like a rewrite of history as such and i've chosen 1973 particularly because it's a counterpoint to people that have already people the image that people have already got in their minds so the the reason this is entirely positive is because i assume that people have already got the Stasi, the political oppression, the dictatorship, all that in their minds, the greyness. So trying to contrast that with the colour, the idealism, the hope that was there at the same time, the you know, particularly this idea that they're creating a better Germany out of the ashes of Nazism, I think is, is something that people often forget, that there were genuinely a lot of people who thought that this was the Germany that the previous incarnations hadn't, uh, like a counterpoint to it. Um, so, you know, it's... It, this is not to forget that at the same time, even during this festival, there was political oppression. You know, if you were known to be, uh, you know, what the regime would have dubbed the troublemaker, you know, if you if you'd kind of try to set up some sort of counter demonstration or something like that, the the authorities would have very swiftly, you know, carted you away and put you in prison for the for the duration of the festival or made it very clear to you from the outset that that's what would happen. And therefore people didn't. So there is that at the same time. I think what people get wrong about East Germany is that they just remember this kind of oppression. It's, I mean, we, you know, I start the book on the assumption that people like to think of, of the world in like opposites. So we like to think of good and bad, you know, of, of kind of black and white, if you will. Um, and it, this is particularly true for Germany, where you have East and West, where you have a capitalist and a communist state that are part of the same nation um, and therefore you know provide like a perfect example almost of this kind of opposite thing um, that, that we like to do this contrast that we like to create uh, when in reality is of course a lot more complicated than than that and I just take issue with the idea that these kind of lives of millions and millions of people get written off as kind of an unfortunate footnote of Cold War history of German history is something that had to be overcome because it negates the hope, the experiences, the also the fun, the music, the culture, all of that. Um, it negates that and makes it kind of part of a failed system that collapsed, and therefore, you know, let's let's wipe it all away with with the state itself. And I think that that is wrong, both as a historian and from a personal point of view. Um, I mean, I start the book off with Angela Merkel kind of saying something very similar. That arguably the most famous and most successful East German. Um, who just before her retirement commented on the fact that her life experience was still her her life experience in East Germany. That's literally half of her life um, was just written off as as ballast as something that she had to deal with, get rid of before she could become a successful politician. And she's taking issue with that in in you know in twenty twenty one, 
and says actually you know what we had lives we they, there were good experiences there were bad experiences but this is part of my life and I don't want to forget it I don't want to overcome it it's part of me and I think that is true for East Germans on the whole um, and also as I say from a historical point of view it's it's just um, ahistorical to write all of that off in one fell sweep as, as kind of a grey drab world that we don't need to talk about anymore. Mm, that's so interesting. Well, thank you so much for taking me on the kind of really fun whistle-stop tour of, of um, East Berlin in 1973. Before we go back to the present and leave the drinking and the festivals and the racy <laughs> films, um, you are allowed to bring back a underlying in state of, <laughs> of Walter Albrecht. Um, you are allowed to um, bring back a memento um, from 1973. So what would you like to bring? People did this thing on the festival where everybody had a silk scarf and people would write little messages and good wishes and signatures on them. I would want one of those and I want everybody that I meet on the day um, to write kind of their hopes, their dreams, their wishes, their thoughts on it. And I'd take that back. Oh, I love that. That's such a good one. Oh, um, well, Katya, thank you so much for joining me today on Travels Through Time. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Hello, Peter here. That was Artemis Irvin talking to Katya Hoyer about her new book, Beyond the Wall, East Germany, 1949 to 1990. It's out this week from Alan Lane and it's been greeted by the most magnificent reviews indeed. That's it for today. I hope you enjoyed it and thank you very much for listening. We'll be back with more very soon. Goodbye.